everyone. Welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFogue. Florian couldn't be with us today, but I'm thrilled to be welcoming Michael Arndt back to the show. Michael's first produced screenplay, Little Miss Sunshine, won the Oscar, the BAFTA, the WGA, and the Indie Spirit Award for Best Original Screenplay. Wow, holy smokes. He also was nominated by the Academy for Best Adapted Screenplay for Pixar's Toy Story 3, which was only the third animated film ever to be nominated for Best Picture. He has written for many major studios and franchises, including the Hunger Games franchise. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. We have so much to talk about with Michael today, and we're going to answer your questions, too, that you guys sent in. So let's jump right in. Now, Michael, I know you came today with a topic in mind. Well, we're going to talk about several different topics. But the first topic that we're thinking about or you're thinking about that's on your mind is the death of the movie Rebel. Do I have that right? Yes. Um, so, yeah, I don't. What does that mean? Tell me. Well, it's I'm interesting. It, it, this is something that, that I've been thinking about for a long time. And you'll have to forgive me. This is going to be me blathering on for for a couple of minutes here. Please, please um, blather. But I was when I was a kid growing up, we go to see movies, and one of the main staples of movies was sort of the the, the heroic male rebel, right? The guy who was going to you know bust out of uh, ordinary life, leave the rat race, and, and and go off and live on his own terms and be 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 the cool guy, right? Be and those were like very powerful figures for me, like growing up, like, and I think for for a lot of people. And um, to make a long story short, I'm going to try and make this brief. I feel like that figure has kind of disappeared from American movies. And so I spent some time like thinking about why and and sort of why we don't see guys trying to escape, trying trying to leave, like. And uh, and I'll go back and I'll say just just to to to, to, to tee it up. You know, the movies that made big impressions on me were things like Catch-22, The Graduate, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And in each one of those narratives, they end with the hero breaking out of an institution and going off towards an uncertain future, but going off on their own. So in Catch-22, Yasserian, sorry, I'm spoiler alert, he leaves the army, he gets in a little uh, rubber raft and he starts paddling towards Sweden. But he's off like by himself, like on his own, you know, to, to, to go find freedom and autonomy, basically. In One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, McMurphy doesn't get out of the institution, but it's um, the chief, right, is able to bust out. And the last shot is him sort of running off into the woods. And it's a solitary guy, like, off on his own. He's going to live life on his own terms. And the graduate, of course, like Ben and Elaine bust out of bust out of the church. So over and over again, you see this vision of life where these institutions are oppressive and constraining, right? And that the fantasy back then was to break away, was to bust out and go and 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 get freedom and autonomy. That was like really this ideal. Um, and so I'm gonna I'm now just gonna take a giant step backwards and talk about sort of how how that how that rebel came about because in the early days of movies from say like 1900 to 1950, the hero was a guy who 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 wasn't looking for freedom, right? He was standing up for the community. It was John Wayne. It was. Uh, George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life, you know, in It's a Wonderful, or it's Rick and Casablanca, right? They're tempted, these heroes are tempted to put their own narrow self-interest first, right? Over and over again, George Bailey is tempted to leave Bedford Falls. He's tempting to, tempted to sell his savings and loan to Mr. Potter. And over and over again, he he turns away from his own self-interest and he acts in the, for the benefit of the community. And I think that there's, and, and so that's kind of what uh, heroes were for a long, long time. And I think there was a real cultural shift or a real sea change that happened in American culture after World War II, especially after, I think, the invention of television. And there was this, there was this whole overturning where suddenly uh, the individual was more important than the community. And that's led to the rise of the rebel hero, right? So you have uh, Marlon Brando and the wild one going off on his motorcycle and living life on his own terms. And he doesn't have a, I mean, he has this community of fellow bike riders around him, but he's, he's sort of a sticking it to the man and living outside the system. You have James Dean Rebel Without a Cause, and then you have just mainstream uh, things like Han Solo in in Star Wars, right? Like he's the cool guy in Star Wars. Like he has his own ship. He's got Chewbacca with him and they they go off in their smuggling, right? I mean, it's very uh, 1970s. Very, very 1970s. Ideology, right? Like I was alive in the 70s. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, I was very young, of course, but um, I, you know, it was all anti-establishment. We have a war that nobody likes. You know, there's protests in the streets, you know, kind of well, the and, man above us. And then speaking just to my my own personal experience, my dad uh, worked for the government. He worked in the State Department and he basically had one job for 20 years. Right. He would put on a suit and tie, driving to work and and um, 
and just, you know, had had uh, two weeks vacation a year and work, 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 work. And if that's your life, right? If you're, if you, let's say you're Jack Lemon in the apartment, right? You're working for a giant insurance company. It's a very potent fantasy to say, you're going to say, screw to your boss, right? Leave, go off and live life on your own terms, right? And I think that I grew up, I grew up witnessing my dad sort of like, my dad was a sailor. He loved sailing and sailing was his escape. Sailing was how he got outside of like, the confining strictures of conformist bougie life, right? And, and and broke away. And I witnessed that and I really internalized it. So uh, for me, like those, uh, the male rebel heroes were the ones, sort of the aspirational role models that you sort of aspire to. And what's interesting, and so it's a little disturbing for me when, when you look around sort of post like the year 2000 and there's no rebels anymore. And I'm like, what happened to the rebels? Where are they? Like, like uh, and what's happened to our culture? And I'm trying to make this brief, but but I was talking to my niece about Harry Potter, and I kind I'll just confess I kind of missed the boat on Harry Potter. I, I, I you know I saw a couple of movies, but I didn't get into the, the whole thing too much. But my niece was super super into Harry Potter. She completely loved it, and I was trying to figure out what was the appeal, like why did it resonate so strongly with with her and with with her whole generation. And I said to her like what. Uh, what's the aspirational role model in, in 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 Harry Potter? Do you want to be Harry? Do you want to be Hermione? Do you want to be Dumbledore? Like, who are you aspiring to be? And she said, it's none of those things. It's Hogwarts. What you want to do is you want to go to Hogwarts. And it blew my mind because as a kid, when I grew up, institutions were things yeah. that you wanted to escape from. Institutions yeah, were things opposite. that you wanted to get away from, right? Yeah. And I was just like, so in a weird way, Harry Potter is the opposite of a rebel, right? He's looking to join an institution. He's looking to join a, join a community. And my niece said, she goes, you don't understand it. She goes like, for your, my dad's generation, the dream was freedom and liberation. And you had, you know, in, 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 from let's say 1950 to 2000, you had all these liberation movements. You had women's lib, you have gay liberation, you even have decolonialization. There's this long shift towards uh, uh, getting rid of old structures, old hierarchies, old forms of, of community, old gender norms, right? But what my niece said was, now we live in this world where no one has the same job for 20 years, right? Everyone is a free radical now. Everybody is, in a way, has sort of been disconnected. And right. so people are living their lives now feeling sort of disconnected, feeling alienated, feeling very insecure. And so she was like, the fantasy now is that you're going to have connection, that you're going to not be alienated, that you're going to feel secure. And that's what a community or an institution provides. And so it's potent about... Harry Potter is that it's it's also it's not just an inherited community that you join. It's not it's not you you're not going back to Bedford Falls, right? You're not just working for your yeah. dad, savings and loan. It's that you are living amongst the Muggles, right? You're living amongst ordinary people, and someone's going to come along and go, "Kid, you're special," and yeah. you are get invited to join the special community of other special people that's somewhere somewhere else. It's removed from 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 ordinary life. And I think what's important is that it's an intentional community, like. It's not just like, oh, we're going to go live on an island somewhere and, and, and be hedonists, right? It's you're going to this institution in order to uh, learn the traditions of wizarding, become a, a good wizard yourself, and then pass on those traditions to the younger generation. And so anyway, it just kind of blew my mind um, to, to think that there's been it's, – it's actually overturning the whole uh, sort of aspirational quality of movies that instead of wanting to – be a autonomous individual when maximum freedom for yourself, which is what I grew up as. What the fantasy now is that you're going to join a team, an intentional team. I think that's why the Avengers has right. um has been uh, such a success because, like, yeah, it's fun to watch Thor go around by himself and save the world, or watch Iron Man go around by himself. But it's a lot more fun to watch these this team come together with each other for a common purpose and have them sort of argue and bicker with each other, but unite, and that gives them this this uh, sense of community. And I think that um. It made me realize why Barbie, I think, has been so successful. Um, I think that I'll just I'll just say that uh, I wrote Ken and Barbie in Toy Story three, and so after this is years and years ago, but after I finished working on Star Wars, uh, they came and asked me if I wanted to write a Barbie movie, and I I said no because I had just finished. I didn't want to do any more giant franchises, and I'll say thank goodness I said no. <laughs> Because I would have completely screwed up the Barbie movie. Like I would have had her be the solitary individual hero, and I would have had her have some sort of romance with Ken, you know, that would have broken up and, and then been resolved. And I think the genius, I think that uh that 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 Greta Gerwig made two really genius choices 
in putting together that story. The you know your story is always set up on what are you putting at stake in the story, and then what are the forces of antagonism that are working that, that are working against you. And the thing that she chose to put at stake, which is kind of the genius thing, is Barbie Land itself, right? This community of women, this sisterhood that all lives in Barbie Land, you know. And it's this sort of idyllic, you know, Garden of Eden setup where you know women kind of get do what they want. And then the other genius choice <laughs> is that the force of antagonism that are arrayed against them are, you know, they go out in the real world and and you know they discover fire or Ken discovers fire, right? He he discovers patriarchal thinking and he brings it back to Barbie Land, right? And so what Barbie's trying to do, she's not trying to win freedom. She's not trying to achieve anything, right? She's trying to rescue her community, right? And the way that she's able to rescue community is by calling forth a cognitive dissonance, a dissonance, a dissonance inherent in, in patriarchy. Like the third act of the story is you're literally in going and kidnapping your fellow Barbies, right? And deprogramming them and, and, and getting over the sort of patriarchal thinking. And obviously that, and the really amazing thing to me is like she, they don't, she doesn't end up with Ken at the end. And so um, my, I was having but a she Zoom. has her own arc outside of that. She has like, a little bit of an arc, but but to me- I mean, me, she becomes human and gets a vagina. It's a giant arc. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Well, but it I starts think that, out with, I want my, he, my foot to be up in a heel. I don't want to wear a loafer or right. whatever it was. And it ends up with, I'm a regular girl and I want to go get a, I have a vagina. Like it's gigantic. So I do think she's trying to save a place. And I think that's real, but that place is also evolving. It's yeah. not just return it to the way it was. Yeah, no, totally, totally. It's it's you're not you can't go back to the Garden of Eden, but you can find find your way forward. And I think that I, I'll just say that uh, I was on a Zoom with my my assistant recently, and she was wearing a sweatshirt that said, and it said, uh, "Sisterhood is how we survive." And I was like, "That's what Barbie's about." Like, and I'll just say, I would have like as a as a dude, right? As a guy, like, thank goodness I didn't write Barbie because I would have never come up with that. I would never thought about that. And it's just, again, it's interesting to me that when you look at things like Harry Potter, which obviously had a huge resonance for the millennial generation or um, or Barbie, for example, the thing that the characters aspire to, it's actually the opposite of freedom and autonomy, right? It's that they're what they're looking for is if everyone now, you know, we're in this epidemic of people feeling uh, epidemic of loneliness, epidemic of depression, stress, anxiety. If people feel disconnected, if they feel insecure, if they feel like alienated from from the work they do, then the fantasy is you're going to become connected, you're going to feel secure, and you're going to have uh, work that you feel connected to. And so, anyway, I just I and thus like the death of the male rebel hero, like that. The, well, those... okay, but they're still around. I mean. And, and I'm are realizing they? that, the, well, the movies that are coming into my mind that are still Rebels, but they're actually movies that are remakes from that period. Yeah. So Mission Impossible, yep. right? He is a rebel. He is, he, Tom Cruise does that every time and every, you know, he always is inside of an institution. He finds out they're corrupt and he gets kicked out and now he takes it down. So he's outside of an institution in most of the Mission Impossible, but he still has what you're describing, which is his family. He still yeah. has the group he belongs to that is working against this kind of bigger authoritarian. So to me, it's like a they, they've taken the old idea and it's still there, but they're infusing it with what you're describing, which is the family, the group I want, the specialness, the group. Specialness of the chosen family. And I think that right. it's, and so just to, I'm, I'm just going to uh, double underline this, you'll have to forgive me, but it does feel like there's these, these we, we're in the middle of these huge cultural shifts where from let's again, just very broadly from 1900 to 1950, it's all about affirming community, but it's 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 inherited community but with all the old hierarchies, with all the old gender norms, with all everything. From 1950 to, I'm just going to say 2000, there's a shift where you're putting the individual above the community and you're trying to break free of all the old constraints. You're smashing taboos, smashing taboos, smashing taboos, right? And, 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 uh, and put, you know, coming up with radical individualism in the wake of sort of everyone become a, a free radical, everyone become an individual. There's a thirst for community, but you can't go back to the old inherited community, right? And so I think we're in this very interesting situation now in the movies where our, the, what, in a movie, I think what the thing that movies are so powerful about is giving you aspirational role models, giving you things that you go, that's what I want. That's who I want to be. I want to be like that guy, or I want to be like that girl. And uh, and so I think that there's a way in which um, 
movies are still grasping towards like a new way of a, a new a new aspirational thing, a new thing that that, that people are going to want. And just as a, a little bit of a sidebar, both with Barbie, I mean, I think Taylor Swift being named Person of the Year by Time Magazine, I was just thinking about this. I think is a huge bloody deal because. Um, if you, I don't think there's that many actually aspirational role models for women in movies. I mean, there's a handful, but there's not too many. But I think in music, like music has become the place where, you know, you have Beyonce, you have Taylor Swift, where young girls, young women look up and go, that's what I want to be like. I want to be like Taylor Swift. I want to be like Beyonce. So it's interesting that I think movies, I won't say the failed uh, uh, girls and young women with aspirational role models, but you have this very, I mean, for Taylor Swift to be named person of the year, it just shows the potency of, uh, of, of like her example. I do think though, in terms of you can't return to Eden, I think that, or I wonder if, to me, it feels a little bit deeper, like- I do think that there's something wrong in Barbie land. There's something facile about it, that Eden wasn't even real to begin with and that this evolution needs to happen. Like, it's not like, well, we've we've lost that kind of inherited thing and we can't go back. So therefore we'll build something new. It's like that thing in the past didn't work. It was too um, fake. It was too pre- presentational, which I think is also what people, a lot of people are feeling about in our society where everything's so presentational, that there's right. something unreal about this. Yep. There's something not emotionally authentic about it. And by finding our own group, we're finding something more authentic to us, to the society, which I do think everybody's kind of looking for authenticity. Totally, totally. And it's very... Um... Yeah. I, the other thing with Barbie or Barbie land as the story begins is that it's actually a hierarchical culture, but it's women on top. Right. And men like women are dominant, men are subordinate. Right. And I think that what you do is, you know, Ken comes back with his patriarchal thinking and he tries to reverse it so that now men are dominant and women are subordinate. And I think obviously the happy synthesis is that you can have relationships between the sexes where no one's dominant, no one's subordinate. People are equal with each other. That's okay. obviously the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Uh, ABC progression. The other topic we wanted to talk about today before we get to listener questions is what you call the therapy movie. Yes. Um, that you believe development has become too focused on character wound and flaw. And that focus is pulling us away from larger story stakes and story elements that we need to be thinking about. And it's funny because at first when you uh, we were talking about this before the show. I was a little bit like, wait a minute, this is completely opposite of what I say. Um, and then I realized, no, I don't think it is because I think therapy movie is a little pejorative, but um, yep, yep, yep. I, I think I intentionally think... so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's your view that it right. should be intentionally so. Well, it is not my view. And we're going to get into it. Yep. But I don't think it's the opposite of of what we do. You know, we have a Patreon in which we do hear listener pitches and we help them with them. And you know, I find a lot of times mostly what I'm asking is about plot, is about yep. stakes, is about yep. what does she want? What's yep. happening? What's in it? And that all of the thinking has been done on the wound and the interior. But now, yeah, that that it's two halves of a whole. And for me personally, and not in every movie, but the way I write the movies, I want both halves. And I think it's absolutely legitimate to say we've maybe overbalanced in in terms of our thinking. And I also, the last thing I want to say before we dive in is, you know, we have different listeners at different levels, right? There's emerging writers and right. then there's pros who listen too. So I think some of this might be uh, when you've got your chops as a writer, yep, you can yep. start twisting, turning, but you still have to learn the basics in my opinion. Um, but I think it's such a fascinating conversation because I do absolutely agree. So talk to me, let's just start with when you say therapy movie, what you mean? Yeah. Um, and let me, I, I was joking a little bit about the pejorativeness. Like I will say that like, I know, I know. <laughs> um, I, I would call a therapy movie, just a, a, a certain kind of narrative. Right. And I'll just use finding Nemo as an example. I mean, we're all familiar with this. You have a character, he's traumatized, you know, he responds in a dysfunctional way. You begin the movie with his dysfunction sort of creating unhappiness in his life, but he's willing to tolerate it because he's still feeding this, he, he, he's still feeding this flaw that he has, or he's still trying to avoid this trauma. The solution at the end of, 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 of Finding Nemo, right, is that he's got to face not only his own personal fear, right, but he's got to face his own worst fear, which is let, like letting Nemo go out and put himself in danger. And there's even this great moment where, where he thinks Nemo, like he, the worst thing has happened. Like he promised Nemo he would protect him. He let him go and he's afraid Nemo has died. 
But in the wake of like looking inside himself, confronting, like recognizing that 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 he has been constraining Nemo's life and that he needs to let Nemo be free, right? He faces his own demons, he sees his own flaw, he faces his trauma, and he comes out a better parent on the on the other side, right? And so you're going from dysfunctional, unhappy behavior at the beginning to functional happy behavior at the end. And it's great. Like that's a great movie. Like, I mean, it's just stone cold classic, right? Like you just can't can't argue with it. And I'll say you know, some of my favorite movies, like uh, I'll say Tootsie or or Groundhog Day, are also therapy movies. Like you start off with characters with uh, unhappy, dysfunctional behavior, and they resolve themselves at the end. They come at the they they are forced to look within, sort of come to terms with who they really are, right? Face their fears and and uh, and become better people and raise and, their consciousness and, and raise I their consciousness. Say, and I would say I I just call those transformative characters because that's yeah. what's happening. They are transformative. Yeah. They're characters. transforming. And the bigger the transformation, obviously, the easier it is to write. But, you know, that is a transformative character. I don't think those are the only kind of characters because yeah. you, you. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I think that the question is, like, where is the flaw in the universe or where is the pro- where are the problems in the universe? If the problems are on the inside of the character, then obviously that's what needs to get healed on the outside of the character. Now, there's another kind of. So my thing with therapy movies is not they're bad, right? I'm just saying my thing is that not all narratives are therapy narratives and not all movies have to be therapy movies. And I'll just contrast. I mean, the terminology I've come up with is that the opposite of a therapy movie is a war movie, right? So I'm just going to speak very briefly, hypothetically, like if your lead character is someone who lives in, in Warsaw in 1940, right? And the Nazis come in kill your whole family, kill all your friends and neighbors, kill everyone you know. And you go, okay, I'm going to go to Berlin. I'm going to find Hitler's bunker and I'm going to kill Hitler, right? You have a very strong first act break. You have a midpoint. You have a second act break. You find the bunker. You're able to break in. The whole third quarter of your movie is getting into the inner sanctum and killing Hitler. You don't need, there doesn't need to be any sort of internal reckoning with that character because the problems, the problems have not started on the inside with that character. The problems are all in the external world, right? That's what that she's just dealing with external problems. There's an external solution to the external problems. So, and the bigger sort of your external stakes, the bigger, I mean, that's a very, very extreme example, but the, the bigger your external stakes are, I think the less need you have for sort of any sort of internal transformation. And I'm I'm only bringing this up because, uh, well, let me let me go to the example of Aaron Brockovich because I think Aaron Brockovich is a good example also. Aaron Brockovich is not a perfect care, perfect person, right? She's flawed. She's a bit of a chip on her shoulder, right? But when you be- you begin the movie and she's in a hole, right? She she doesn't have a, a job. She doesn't have any money. She's eighteen thousand dollars in in medical debt, and she needs to get a job. And she's facing this sort of hostile world that's engaging in this form of class snobber, education-based class snobbery, right? Which is she doesn't have a college degree. She doesn't have a, a a legal license. And she's not, she's just not accorded the respect. And even I'll say the inciting incident, it's really, really smart writing. That's smart writing all the way through. But the inciting incident is that she gets rear-ended by this car. She goes to court and sues the guy. And the other guy is totally at fault, but the other guy is a doctor. He has an advanced degree. He's from a different social class. And the jury believes the doctor. They don't believe her, right? So she's facing a world that is devaluing her her opinions, her story, and 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 just sort of disrespecting her. And the rest of the movie is her climbing out of that hole. So at the end of the movie, she's going to get a job. She's going to get uh, she's going to have money, right? But she's also going to earn the respect that the world has been sort of conspiring uh, to deny her. And my fear, I, so my my little pet peeve is that I'm afraid with the with the with the with the Sort of dominant transformative so the, character movie. Yeah, yes. that that a producer will come in and go look at the script for Aaron Brockovich and go, okay, what's her flaw? Like, how does she become a better person? You know, obviously, like she didn't make a bunch of great choices to end up here, and so, and I think that there's a way in which that is misreading who that character is and what the problems she's facing are. I would say though, it's funny because in my seminar, I always start my seminar by saying there's three types of characters. I'm only talking about one today. Right. And, the, but there are characters who don't change Aaron yep. Brockovich, yep. um, taken, yep. I mean, we can go on, being there. We could go Forrest Gump. We can go on and on. But I do think that there, and I think this is where if someone said that to me, I'd say, well, first of all, your story is a non-changing character. That's the story we have, right. but right. there is a transformation happening and it's usually the world or the people that they meet. Yeah. Yeah. Erin Brockovich completely changes the world. She yes. starts out in a shitty law firm. They yep. have no money to pay her. And she ends up 
in a high rise. She's taken every one of those people on the ride with her and they're handing her a million dollar check because they're so fucking rich now. Meaning, and you know what, meaning if someone said that to me, I'd be like, there's your transformation. That's yep. the shift. And yep. there usually is a teeny tiny little thing that that person learns, quote unquote, like she learns that maybe don't shoot off your mouth every time. But you yep. know what? She's going to be who she is. And that's totally. just part of it. But totally. there's some there is some illumination in the character, but it's really not what it's about. But I do totally. think where I think if it's there is no transformation, like let's say your World War II version, if that guy got all the way to the bunker and failed, I probably would say, well, then what is his change? Because he didn't actually implement anything externally. So then that transformation that we're waiting for, that catharsis now goes back to him. Whereas if he did change the world, maybe he didn't kill Hitler, but he changed something dr- dramatic. Right. I'd be like, yeah, that's that's the move. There's the transformation right there. So I think the reason the reason that this is a bit of a sore spot for me is because I'm working on a script that starts off with a character and it, she's a little bit like Aaron Brockovich. She's got a bit of an attitude problem and she's trying to, I'll just say she's trying to do something professionally. And um, throughout the sort of me trying to develop the script, I kept having people ask me, well, what's her flaw? What's her flaw? And I was like, she's not flawed. She's not a flawed character, right? She doesn't, she's not trying to, um, uh, um, uh, uh, she, she doesn't need to fi- fix herself. And I, the right. thing that I settled on is uh, going back to actually the It's a Wonderful Life model, because It's a Wonderful Life is such an interesting film because George Bailey is not a flawed character, right? He goes through the movie doing the right thing the whole time. He's always doing the right thing. What's flawed about him is that he misperceives the value of his actions, right? So he goes through the whole movie thinking that Mr. Ponder is the richest man in town, but he's always behaving in the right way. He's always choosing to do the right thing. Um, and his unhappiness doesn't come from his own actions or dysfunctional uh, dis- dysfunctional actions. It comes from his misperception of the value of the way he's living his life. He wants to be the richest man in town, and he thinks that Mr. Potter's the richest man in town. And the climax of the story is George's war hero brother flies through the blizzard and goes to George Bailey, the, the richest man in town. And it's just the, the character is changing, but he's not changing in the way that he behaves. He's changing his perception of himself and his perception of his life. So that was the model that I adapted for this project that I'm working on, is that my character is not a flawed character. She's still trying to do the fucking right thing all the time. Like she's trying she's to do right. She's right yeah. when she starts. She's I... right, but she's running up against she's running up against sexism. She's running up against age discrimination. She's running right. up against I mean, all these external problems. And I would say, because I've studied this a little bit because I think a lot of women characters get this role. And for me, the only way I could work it out was, and this is just my terminology because it helps me remember, it's a claiming, she's a claiming character. She still has to arc, but her arc is totally different because she's right to start the movie. If you think about Moana, Moana's song is, I feel like I need to go out. I need to get on the boat. I need to go somewhere. And she's singing about her doubts in doing that. But really, she's right. She does need to get on the boat. But what she doesn't realize and what you're talking about is how is that she has to claim her power and that her power is so much bigger than she could ever imagine in Act One. If that she thinks it's her how that's wrong. Right. She thinks I have to go get Maui and he'll do it. Right. Right. But what she finds out by the end of Act Two is guess what? He ain't doing it. You yep. have to do it. Right. You, have, you have to, to claim your power and you've got to go do this alone. So there is a shift in perception. Like you're saying, the blinders come off. But usually, it's, I don't know, it's always not always for female characters, but usually it's about their power base and that they have to be more powerful than they could have ever imagined. They have to claim that power. Yep. And, you know, it's funny, though, because, Michael, I'm having the different opposite trajectory of you because I literally had to go. I was go, I went and spoke at a college with Lorian. And we talked a lot about female characters and and how they're presented. And I realized in doing the research that so many movies with women as leads are claiming movies. And we don't actually really want them to, to transform. We don't want them to go through and be wrong and be wounded and be fucked up and actually need to realize something about themselves. Now, of course, there are them like Joy is one of right. them where she's wrong. She's yep. absolutely wrong at the beginning of the movie. And I have to tell I have to convince you that she's right so that you travel with her. But they don't. What is it? Why do why do we not want women to be flawed heroes? Why do it's so interesting to me? Anyways, that's a side thing that I'll do my own show on that when I figure it out. But that's that's a great <laughs> point, And I hadn't thought about it. So I need to go back and, and think a little bit more about it. I just want to do just sort of a summing up, which is, yeah, I feel like, you know, we are in the midst of this 
you know, the cliche is sort of like an epidemic of depression, an epidemic of uh, loneliness, an epidemic of stress and anxiety, an epidemic of disconnection, right? And I think that, and my thing is that that, I don't think that's the fault of, of most people. I think we live in a sick society that produces those effects, you know, that the problem is not inside most people. If you're depressed, if you're feeling alienated, if you're feeling lonely or disconnected, that's not your fucking fault. That's the fault of the world that's making you feel that way. And so I, the thing that I think is a little bit of a danger of the therapy movie is that if a character is feeling alienated, depressed, lonely, et cetera, et cetera, that you're going to go, oh, the problem is with you. The problem is like not with the outside world. The problem is with you. And I think that for most people, like Erin Brockovich is a pretty good example. Her problems are external problems. Her problems are with the world and the way the world treats her, right? And so I just feel like there's a there's a teeny bit of a bias in terms of story development to have people talk about character and go, how is this character sabotaging themselves or undermining themselves? How, how can we fix them at the end? And I think that it there's a way in which it devalues the way in which, uh, 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 for example, you know, Katniss is in this totally, you know, in Hunger Games, is in this totally fucked up, uh, society right. that she has to, she has to navigate, and I think that you know, I, obviously the the Hunger Games is this very resonant metaphor for for late capitalism, where everyone is pit against each other, and you have a a winner take all sort of doggy dog. Uh, the only thing I would say, and um, this is more now speaking to our emerging writers, because I'm always I'm, they're always on my mind. Yep. Um, the only thing I would I would I would warn people about, or just something to think about, if a character can be victimized, but being a victim is not a character. Yes, Meaning completely. being victimized is a situation. Totally. But a lot of younger emerging writers assume that's all they need for a character. I'm interested in there's a situation in which people are being victimized and why this person? Why is this the hero we're choosing? Why is this the person that we're going to watch in this situation? And that's the question you have to ask yourself. If you're going to choose this kind of hero, right, where it is a kind of don't fall into victim power as your power base. It's not going to be fruitful, uh, in my opinion. Just to go back to my my stupid war war movie example, like you can have your character be victimized, right? The Nazis can come in and kill your whole family and all your friends and neighbors, right? And then you want a moment actually at the end of Act One where someone's going to go, "Hey, you survived. Let's go off and we'll hide in the woods. I have a place that you can be safe, right? And you can just like hide and we'll ride out the war and you don't have to risk anything, right? And your hero is going to go, no. I am not going to like let the world continue on. The world has gone mad and I'm going to put an end to it. I'm going to go to Berlin. I'm going to find Hitler's bunker. I'm going to kill Hitler. And that turns them into an active protagonist. So again, your hero can be a victim in the first act of the story. They just have to, you just need to give them a really strong goal and a second act, uh, uh, a very strong long-term goal and a very strong short-term plan to achieve that goal to make them. So let's just quickly talk about that because I think a lot of, you know, when we were talking before the show, you were saying that your concern is, is that people are so focused on the wound and this giant arc and this transformation that they're actually not talking about some of the other incredibly crucial story things that need to be dealt with. And I would like to just take five minutes and talk about these. You mentioned lack of stakes and narrative engine. Like, this is what we end up doing on the Patreon. This is these things. So can you talk a little bit, and I can remind you if you need them, kind of what those are. Sure. I think that I gave, actually, when I was down in Austin, I gave this talk about, about soliciting feedback in your story. And I made an explicit point that that we have two sides of our brain, right? There's the intuitive, emotional, uh, instinctive side of our brain. Which is which is where your creativity comes from, like it's where all your great ideas come from, and that for screenwriting that's super fucking important, especially at the beginning of the process. At the beginning of your screenwriting process, it's all your intuitive, emotional brain going. I think this is a good idea. I think this is a cool character, right? And you and that's going to guide you. That's going to be your interbarometer, your inter uh, what is it compass uh, for a long, long time. But there's a second side to your brain, right? Which is the the, the sort of uh, analytical, the sort of the, e- instead of being quick and intuitive, right? It's slow, it's effortful, and it's analytical, right? That's the other side of your brain. And just as you start the process with the sort of quick, intu- uh, intuitive, emotional side of your brain, as you go through the writing process, I think gradually you're going you're, you're gonna to bring in your slow, rational, sort of effortful uh, 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 analytical side to your story and going, okay, it's still not working. People are still not responding the way I want them. Why not? Why are they not doing it? And I think that um, there's a point in your story where you've kind of spent, you've spent all your capital in terms of like 
investing your emotions in the story and and and, and interrogating yourself and go, what what is it about the story that is so meaningful to me? Like I'm gonna dig, dig, dig deep and find the true meaning of the story. There's a certain point where you put that aside and you go, okay, let's just take this whole story like a car, put it up on blocks, open up the hood and see what's working or or what's not working. Yeah, I'll just give you an example from a from a, a screenwriting job I had. It was just a, a, a weekly job, but I was trying to sharpen up, just trying to trying to trying to fix this story. And it was very fuzzy in the second act break of the story. Like the, the second act break, it just kind of like nothing was really coming together. And I kept kind of smush, smushed like the, the the second act and third act together and get them like to fit each other in a way that that felt rational. And I came up with a pretty good semblance of like a second act break. And thank goodness there was one executive in the corner and she was just like, I'm not buying it. It just doesn't feel right. Like this, like you've, you've done a lot of work, but it's not feeling right. And I was like, well, I don't know what else to do. And she said, well, what did what did Star Wars do? Like at the end of the second act. And I was like, oh, well, that's simple. What Star Wars did was <laughs> you allow your hero to achieve their second act goal, right? You, you, you get the plans and you deliver them to R2, but your antagonist is so formidable that they use your success right? To force the stakes of your story, put a homing beacon on the Millennium Falcon, and now the bad guys are on their way to wipe out the rebel base. So you you have a wily antagonist, uh, a wily and formidable antagonist who's able to use the hero's success in the second act goal to force stakes on. And this executive was like, that's what you should do. Do that. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. So there's a way in which once you, if you go back up to 30,000 feet and you just go, how did Finding Nemo introduce Marlin? Or how did... um. Uh, the graduate get ben, Benjamin Braddock and, and and Elaine, you know, Robinson to fall in love with each other. There's a way in which you can just go and look at other examples of stories that work and go, how is this working in a way? And it's, I, I always go back to your ten, six temple moments of storytelling, right? Which is uh, your opening, your inciting incident, your first act break, your midpoint, your second act break, and your climax. And if you, you know, if if people are not caring about your story, you know, Go back and look at your inciting incident and go like, is there a way that I can make this stronger? Is there a way I can add insult to injury? Is there a way that like a bully can come along and cook, kick sand in the hero's face so that you're we're more invested with that hero? If you feel as though your story is puttering out in your second act, go back and look at your first act break and go like, is my first act break doing everything that it needs to do in order to set up and power, you know, get, get a story engine that's going to power the story all the way through the second act? So I think that, again... I'm not in any way diminishing the importance of your quick, intuitive, emotional brain. That's where your best ideas come from. That's where the story process begins at, right? I'm just saying we have two parts of our brain and we can use both of them sort of at the same time. And you've got to do both. I mean, I I loved your list of things that people aren't thinking about because they're so busy thinking about wound, which is compelling stakes, strong narrative engine, redundant beats misplaced story chronology, weak tentpole moments. You know, because I used to be a producer, my brain is always moving back and forth. I right. I, I am a writer and I'm intuitive. And then sometimes my brain will just jump out and be like, wait a minute, what are the what are the trailer moments of this? I don't what genre I'm totally where is any genre beat? Where do I you know, and I just start to go out in. Uh, so I do think you if you can move through both of those, that's ideal. And I think people's brains work differently. Sometimes I'll read a script and it's only that outside in stuff. It's got every beat it needs. It's got all the stakes and I don't care about it. Yeah, I don't it's just care completely soulless. About it. Yeah, totally. And because there's Your no emotional, yeah. there's no lava in there. It's not making you, you're not being an artist. You're being kind of a tinkerer or craftsman. Right. Right. And or it's the opposite. It's all it's all it's all emotion. And I'm like, but there's no story. What is the story? And the story isn't when I say what is the story? I'm not saying what is that emotional wound? I'm saying what's the story? What do they want? What's in in, and against them? Blah, blah, blah. So I do think it's kind of being able to form both of those things and knowing which one you're stronger at. Know yourself. If you're if you're kind of better at one than the other, that's okay. That just know that about yourself and work on the other one, or have the friend who's better at the other one to call you on it. <laughs> sort of. You're teeing up. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell a two minute anecdote about about yeah, working uh, at at Pixar. Uh, I remember this was such a formative memory for me. Uh, there was an early screening of Wally, and uh, it was probably the second or third set of reels. And Andrew Stanton had been working for a year and a half to try and make Wally the most lovable character in the history of of movies, right? He was just like, I'm going to design him and I'm going to have his personality. He's going to collect things and blah, blah, blah. 
and just did everything he can to make Wally as lovable as possible. And then, you know, Wally meets Eve, he goes up on the axiom, blah, blah, blah. Screening ends, we come in and have our story meeting afterwards. And people are, you know, it's a lukewarm story meeting, we'll put it that way. But finally, and I'll, I'm going to say her name, Kiel Murray just turns to Andrew and goes, well, I just don't like your lead character, you know? And it blew my mind because like, oh my God, I didn't even know you were allowed to say that, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, like, what is Andrew going to do? Like, he's worked so hard to make this character lovable. And you have someone just flat out saying to his face, I don't like your lead character. And I think the mistaken thing to do is to go, well, let's make him more lovable. How can we make him more lovable? Like, give him little bit, bits of business to do, like, or have some bully come along and kick sand in his face or something like that. But when you, when you poked into... Uh, Keel's objection and like, why why is she not finding uh, uh, Wally to be a likable character? What it came down to is Wally, you know, Andrew's metaphor the whole time was that it's a janitor who falls in love with a supermodel, right? Janitor falls in love with a supermodel, you go up to the axiom and then the whole second act of the movie was Wally was, you know, creating chaos. Like he was going going around the axiom and spreading chaos. That was, that was in, you know, in, in, inherent in, in Andrew's conception of the story. But to Keel's point of view, Wally had become like this little puppy dog that was just trailing after uh, Eve and just making messes everywhere he went, making messes, and just got to be this sort of annoying character. And so the answer was actually a plot thing, which is when Eve opens up her thing and there's no plant there, right? In the old version of the movie, she just went back to her job, right? But the revised thing was because she opens up her thing and there's no there's no plant there, she's labeled as defective and she gets put into that like sort of medical ward. She's got that big red thing on her and they're going to wipe her memory. And then Wally has to go in with his little gun that he steals, right, and bust her out of jail, right? And now he's done something for her. He's rescued her, right? And they go out into space and he's also got the little plant, right? So they go out into space and... In the early versions of the thing, she just, you know, he reveals that he has a plant and she picks him up and flies around holding him. But the better thing to do is that he's got this fire extinguisher there. And that way they are peers, right? It's no longer that she's a supermodel and he's the janitor. It's that he's raised himself up from just being a puppy dog to being a colleague, of, uh, an outlaw with her. Like they're both on the wrong side of the law. They're both on the lamb now. They're both helping each other. And that solves your character problem, right? Now you like him, right? Because he's helped her and he's done something for her. And so I think that, again, there's a way in which a lot of times things that seem like character problems are actually plot problems. And you can solve them by digging into the plot and going, what is the plot not doing here that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna get your audience on board with your lead character? I it's love not, that. It's not Absolutely. a behavior thing. Yes. Yeah, sometimes go out to the plot and just start spitballing plot ideas. And it will eventually resonate back to the character. Like he needed a want. He needed to be activated. He needed to be driving towards something. It it, it will go back. But it, why not? He, go out and He needed yeah. to do something consequential in her life that was going to win her love. Right. And that's right. a rescuing her and being saving the plant. You know, that that was that was her whole purpose. Yeah, for he being. needs to become the hero. Right. He's become he needs to become a peer. He needs like yeah. it's a love story and he needs to become her peer. I love that. Um, this is so great. Can we take some yes. time real quick here and do some questions? Yeah. Um, Catherine asks about the kamikaze moment in a story. Does it exist in every good script? No, I, I don't think so. Um, do you want to define that real quick for people? Yeah. The uh, <laughs> kamikaze moment of commitment is this term that I came up with when I did my video on endings. And it was, and I think we're all familiar with it. Like it's the moment in which your hero at the climax of the story starts to act in a way that seems initially seems to be antithetical to their own best interest. And in the best instance, you have, you want the audience to be going, no, 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 don't do that. Right. I guess the classic example is at the climax of the graduate, Ben starts ba banging on the windows and going Elaine, Elaine, Elaine. And the first time you see that movie, you're like, Oh my God, what are you doing? Like, stop that. Like you're just making everything worse. You know, like you're just, you're just embarrassing yourself and you're ruining this wedding et cetera, et cetera. But, but it's because he, he committed to that because he committed that he was listening to his feelings. He was committing to that. That's the thing that flips, you know, turns Elaine around and Elaine goes Ben and then they run down and they run off together. But um, so the kamikaze moment of commitment, it's this, I use it in Little Miss Sunshine, right? Which is when Olive agrees to go on and everybody has said, she's going to humiliate herself, mom. There's no way she's going to win this contest. Please don't let her do this. And then Olive decides, no, I'm going to go on and I'm going to dance. And to me, it's great. It's always a great 
ending when you have your character going off and doing something that you're going, no, no, that's the wrong thing to do. And then you flip it in one second and it I turns out it. it was the right thing to do. And you're here. Yeah, it's heart stopping. It's amazing because it's they're a great... truly a hero because we could never do that. Our <laughs> instincts are stop, 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 stop. Yeah. No, 99,000 people would not have banged on the window and said, Elaine, Elaine, Elaine. And Benjamin Braddock is a special hero who deserves his happy ending uh, because he had the courage to, to, to just do this kamikaze moment of commitment where he's like, I love this girl and I'm just going to let my my feelings out. You know what? Can I take the, a moment to just, I'm going to do a, like a little 30 second rant, which is I yeah. keep seeing all these comments online that like, because I say the graduate has a happy ending and everybody goes, oh no, the last shot of the movie, it's like they're lost and they're staring off. They don't really love each other. Like you don't know what's going to happen. They, 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 they don't have any plan. It's not a happy ending, blah, blah, blah. And my answer to that is, Go back and what is the first thing that that, that 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 Benjamin Braddock says in the first scene of the movie? He goes, Dad, I'm worried about my future. What about what is it about your future? I just want it to be different, right? So the whole motherfucking movie, he doesn't say to his dad, I want to marry Elaine Robinson or I want to find a soulmate. His whole thing is, I, do, I want my future to be different. And the whole movie or the climax of the story beca becomes his purity test. Yeah. Like if he was just like everybody else, he wouldn't have that kamikaze moment of commitment. He would keep his mouth shut. Right. And just go work in a plastics factory somewhere. But because he does that thing at the climax and he commits to it completely, it flips everything. And now he and Elaine, again, they bust out of the institution, leave everybody behind, hop on the bus. And to me, that's a happy ending because he got what he wanted. His future is going to be different. It's not certain. Right. You don't they could break up the next day. They don't have to get married. And but that's what he wanted. He wanted that's what he wanted. Future because everybody's a, saying go into plastics. You can be certain about plastics. Secure, he doesn't want certainty. And he even getting married, even get if you say, oh, well, they're not going to end up together. You're just repeating the bourgeois mentality that Ben is rebelling against. Like the path to happiness is not necessarily like two kids and a stable and a marriage and a white picket fence. Right. So the fact that Ben is going and is, you know, grabbing the princess from the spell of bourgeois conformity that's been cast upon her and pulling her out. They don't have to end up together. They don't have to become man and wife, right? That's what she was going to do with Carl, you know? So to say, oh, they're not, it's not a happy ending. I'm sorry, it is a happy ending. If you just go back and look at what the problem was that was set up at the beginning. Sorry, it was no, I, I love it because a 30 it's second a rant. really good point because your character at the beginning might be saying they want something, but they don't understand how they're going to get it. Yeah. Like I think of Midnight Cowboy, right? Because another ending on a bus, I guess, is yeah. why I came into my mind. You know, he just wants to be the star. He just wants to be the important cowboy. And he wants to be important to somebody. He wants someone to love him. And by the end of the movie, even though it's a very sad ending, he did get that with this person. Yep. Yep. He did get that with this person in a deeper way than he ever could have imagined. To me, that's the kind of beautiful, even it can be the smallest arc. It's not, he doesn't have to be wrong, but he did get beyond what he could have imagined his own power to love. Totally. Totally. Could be. All right. Sorry. Totally. Well, um, so anyway, just just going back to the kamikaze moment of commitment, yeah. the answer is no. No, not every movie has to have a kamikaze moment of commitment. There's it's a ton a of great thing to think about. Yeah. It's, it's a great thing to think about. And it's a great way to have a climax in which the meaning of your story is revealed in a surprising and satisfying way. I think what makes the end of It's a Wonderful Life so great and compelling is that you are with George Bailey thinking that Mr. Ponder is the richest man in town up until that last second, right? And when his brother says to George Bailey, richest man in town, you have the epiphany with George Bailey, right? You in the audience go, oh my God, he's right. I've been thinking about this. Like, not only has George Bailey been thinking about this all wrong, but I've been thinking about it all wrong. So th that's what a good kamikaze moment commitment will get you. Casey asked about philosophical stakes. If for any of our listeners who don't know that, there's amazing, amazing, amazing YouTube video to go watch that uh, Michael did about philosophical stakes. But the specific question is, do you start with a societal argument or with character and find the stakes? Which way do uh, you, you go? You uh, To me, I mean, I, I wish I was smart enough to start with the societal like thing. and and But I think you start with the character, right? And a character is going to have... An a good character is going to have an argument inside them. Like a good character is going to have a, 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 a set of stakes. But oh my God, I can't tell you. Sometimes it takes so fucking long to figure out what your motherfucking movie is about. It takes forever. <laughs> and I, that's I'll why just, we write fifteen drafts. That's why you write fifteen drafts, man. I'm up to seventeen drafts on this script, and I went through the whole motherfucking first sixteen drafts basically with. The main relationship was, uh, I'll just say, young woman and a and an older dude, right? And I thought 
for 16 drafts that that he was like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the movie, right? That he was like the mentor who was showing her like how to, to navigate the world. And what I realized just in the most recent set of revisions that I did was like, no, he's actually the Han Solo. He's actually the guy who represents the wrong set of values. And he's providing a negative cautionary example to her and that she is going to actually have to reject his values at, at, at the climax of the story. But it took me forever to figure that out, you know? And so I think that you, yeah, you just, you it's don't know. process. It's just a process and you don't know what, you don't know what the real, I mean, the writing, 99% of writing is just thinking, right? And the problem is you, you're you, like, our deepest thoughts are inaccessible to our, to ourselves. So like what we're doing in the process of writing is digging deeper and deeper, going layer after layer, trying to figure out what you really think, right? And a lot of times what you think your movie is about when it begins is not at all what it's about when you when you get to the end of the usually, writing process. Usually. usually. I, if I can even have a word at the beginning, I'm glad, right? Redemption. I don't know what the fuck about redemption it is. I just think maybe it's redemption. Nope, nope, it's not redemption. But I want to say so many emerging writers get to like draft three and they're like, well, this just doesn't work. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is the process. You have to go deeper, go from a different angle, go out, do the plot first, do this, like that digging, that fuck, we got to make this work is how you, I think, find the story. Yeah, no, totally. And it's the other thing. I mean, the other thing is just like the mystery of where ideas come from. Like, where do uh, where do good ideas come from? And a lot of it is just like I'll use the metaphor surfing is that you just paddle out and you wait for the wave to come along, you know? And if you don't paddle out, you're never going to catch a wave. And sometimes you paddle out and it's still, and there's no waves. And you just, you go, what am I doing here? Like floundering around. But but I think that the, there's just a a thing to sitting down and thinking about something day after day that's going to lead to sort of a little breakthrough. Can I tell another little funny story? I feel like this you is- You can. That, I remember Andrew, sorry, I'm telling stories about Andrew Stan here. You should have him as a guest, guest host or something. You do but, an uh, animated version, strangle him. So I he think has- <laughs> He had he had a great story about uh, writing Toy Story, the first Toy Story movie, and the initial conception of Toy Story was that Woody was the old fashioned doll and Buzz was a newfangled doll. And the question was, who is Andy's favorite toy? And Woody was all jealous because Buzz Lightyear came in and said, "Well, I'm so much cooler than you. I have wings, and I can, you know, blah blah blah. I have all these lights and beep and boop, and and you don't do anything." And Andrew said, like, trying to make that funny and trying to make it work was like ca crawling across broken glass. Like they did draft after draft, and nothing was funny and nothing worked. And then they just came up with a single idea. And the single idea was, what if Buzz doesn't know he's a toy? What if Buzz actually thinks he's a space ranger? And Andrew was like, suddenly, like the everything floodgates was. opened and everything was funny. Any situation that you put Buzz and Woody into after that uh, 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 just worked. And I think it's a, just a great metaphor because you can be, I'm just responding to your thing like, oh, my story doesn't work. Right. You can sit there and like beat your head against the floor and go, there's no solution. There's no solution. And I'm telling you, my experience has been sometimes it takes weeks, months, years. I've I've solved story problems after years and years, but there's a solution in there somewhere. And I'm telling you, once you find that solution, it's like you go from crawling across broken glass to suddenly you're on a runway with a you know uh, F-18 <laughs> and you're you know ready to take off. Those are the best days. Those are the best <laughs> days when you find that. Which when you find rare. the one thing that's going to make the whole rest of the movie work. And then and then the next day you're like, oh, no, it was just different. It wasn't but, better. But yeah. here's the thing is that you 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 can't think, you know, a story is 10,000 ideas all strung together in the proper chronology. You can't think of 10,000 ideas all at once and you can't string them together in the proper chronology all at once. Right. You've got to come up with your ideas one at a time, unfortunately. And then you've got to muck around trying to figure out what the proper chronology for your story is. And you've got to pick and choose like which ideas are better. Than other ones. So, and I loved in Austin when we worked together in a panel. You talked about how sometimes you'll do just one draft for one thing that yeah. you can't possibly think you're going to write a screenplay that hits all of those layers, all of those levels in one script or two it, scripts or three I, scripts. You haven't even figured out the story. Once you figure out the story in draft five, now you've got to start layering. I mean, it's it's a tremendous amount of work. Well, let me, so let me just circle on to answering the question again. The answer is no. You don't know what the philosophical stakes of your story are. And and I would guess that if you do or if you if you think by the time you get to draft 18 or 19, you're going to have a, a – you may not have changed it, but you'll have a deeper appreciation of what's philosophically at stake in your story. And uh, and that's, that's just what writing is. So Allison asked, what is your daily, weekly writing routine? Do you take time off? Like what's your routine of writing? Um. 
I wish I could say I was a super disciplined guy who woke up every day at 3.30 in the morning and sat there and like ha hammered out 12 hours of, of, of writing. I think, again, 99% of writing is thinking. So I think that, you know, I just had a, was working on a problem with a script where I was trying to introduce a character and get you to like this, this character. And, you know, that's a tricky thing to do because there's a gazillion different ways that you can introduce this character, the a gazillion things that can happen that are going to get you on board and, and not just get you to like them, but illuminate like the, the predicament that they're in. And so, I don't know, I spent about a week like thinking of this stuff. And I, I will say one thing I do is I, I I will bounce ideas off my assistant and bounce ideas off my my brother every once in a while. And so I came up, after about a week, I came up with an idea and it, you know, it just fit perfectly. It was like the jigsaw piece that, that had been missing, but it took about 30 seconds to write that idea. Like it doesn't take long to actually execute it. What takes a time is to figure out like the best thing that's going to work and, and the best chronology. So I feel like I'm both the laziest man in the world or the laziest writer in the world. And I never stop working because, you know, you carry these stories around in your head with you. Um, but I don't, I, I wish I was more disciplined. I wish I sat down every day at a specific time and, and, and made stuff happen, but I feel like I'm, I'm thinking about stuff all the time and all that subterranean work uh, is, is sort of where the, where your good ideas sort of come from. Um, and so I do feel like there's, there's a value to being a little bit lost. You know, there's a value to not like mm. trying to force things to happen, but, uh, yeah, anyway, the answer is. No, I love that. <laughs> there's a value to being lost. And I also wish I sat down every day and wrote at the same time. And I do believe in that. I believe the muses like it. They start to trust you that you're there. Yep. Yep. And if you can do that, I highly recommend it. My brain does not work that way. And I do mull a lot, but I find sometimes I get too intellectual and I overthink everything and I can start taking everything apart. And I get really, my family get, doesn't want to be around me because I'm in a panic that nothing works. But if I just sit down and start writing anything, the character usually tells me. Like in a weird way, I do both. Again, I go back and forth. Either I let it rest and then let my intellect suddenly pop it up or I let the character just tell me. But I, I also can't... Uh, I, I there, there are times when you just have to, I kind of did this recently also, you just have to force it to happen. Like, and I'll, what I'll do is I'll go, if I have a problem I can't solve, I'll go into my bedroom, I'll lie down, I'll draw the shades, right? I'll put the dark piece of cloth over my face and I'll just lie there in the dark. And there's a way in which you're watching the movie in your head or you're thinking about something and you can just start asking yourself, what if, what if, what if, what if? And that's the thing that can... Um, and then it's amazing how, again, it's just the mystery of like when you don't have an idea, you're afraid you're never going to have another idea for the rest of your life, right? And and like where do ideas come from? I do feel like you can, I mean, especially when you're on like a weekly job and they're paying you all this money, you've just got to come up with ideas. Like that's it. That's you part sure of your do. job. <laughs> and exhausting. So you, you can, yeah. Anyway, it. I. Yeah, it's that that can be very exhausting. I don't think you can live your life that way. Like you can't live your life forcing yourself to come up with ideas. You just wouldn't you wouldn't have a a, a life outside of that. And I'm trying. I'm trying. No, and to... rest is important. Like I yeah. came up with one of my best ideas. Like literally walk taking a walk because I couldn't deal with it anymore. And it just letting it go. Resting is important. There was an um, you know yeah. there was if I can just jump in there was an interesting article in the New Yorker like years and years ago about where ideas come from and they were saying that actually they've studied this. And I'll just give the example of Alexander Graham Bell. Like he was in his uh, laboratory for a week trying to figure out how to make a telephone work. And focus, 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 couldn't figure it out. And he finally took a break, went, sat by a river, you know, had a, I don't know, glass of lemonade or something like that. And that's when the idea came that 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 broke through. And they were saying that 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 a lot of times your ideas come when your mind is a little bit at rest. And it is allowed to wander and it's making connections that it wouldn't make otherwise when you're focused on something. And I remember when we were at Pixar, John Laster said, I like there to be a rhythm to a story meeting that you're going to focus on your problems and you're going to talk about it for 45 minutes, right? And you're going to really focus. And then after, after 45 minutes, you're going to go, hey, how was your weekend? Or, hey, did you see this movie or something like that? And everyone's going to rest a little bit, right? And ha you're, gonna, you're just not going to have to focus so much. And a lot of times, that's when ideas are going to stop popping up, start popping up. So anyway, uh, I do feel like I, I just uh, it's, a, it's a good anecdote about um, the importance of rest in terms of like opening up your brain to sort of possibilities that you wouldn't see if you're totally like myopically And again, back to the theme focused. of our show today, it's two sides, right? One is yeah. sometimes you got to push. You got to be like, what if, what if you got to push it? Really make yourself sit down and do it. And then sometimes you got to rest and that both of those things work in tandem with each yeah. other, that kind yeah. of the two sides of one whole. Yep. Now, Michael, you also wanted to talk about uh, guns and movies, and I don't want to miss that. 
Francisco. So let's talk yeah. about that. I mean, I was just thinking about this. I think that I don't think it's too controversial to say that there's perhaps too much gun violence in America uh, these days. And uh, and I was thinking about just sort of what I can do, like what 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 can anybody do about about this problem that we have? And I think one of the things that that I was thinking about is that I do feel like movies sort of automatically glamorize anything that's in them, you know. And for a long time, for example, let's take cigarettes. Like you know, people smoke like crazy in movies, and there's a way in which you know people flirt by smoking cigarettes with each other. There's just a way that 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 that, that, that a movie will glamorize whatever you do, clothing, behavior, and, and and smoking. And I think that for a long, long time, people just put smoking in the movies without thinking about it. They weren't mindful about it. They just like, if they needed your characters to flirt with each other, you just put cigarettes in the movie and, and it worked. And I'll say that that happened on Little Miss Sunshine. Like uh, I, in the initial drafts, Cheryl wasn't a smoker, but it got put in sort of later on to give her a little sort of secret vice that she had. And I, I was not mindful about it. I just put it in there and and uh, we got a very stern call from from the anti-smoking people saying, you know, why did you why did you have to put this in? And I was just like, oh, I, I didn't even think about that. So I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about guns, and I do feel like just the fact that you have like I, I I feel like Hollywood does have something to answer for in terms of glamorizing guns and gun violence. And I don't think and I don't think that there's a way in which we can wave a magic wand and take guns out of movies. I don't think that that should happen. But I think that I just want screenwriters to be a little bit more mindful now if they're putting a gun in a movie. And I would say, especially if your hero is using a gun to get what they want, to triumph over the bad guy or whatever it is. And uh, years ago, there was a, a, a writer, um, Alison Bechdel, came up with a Bechdel test. And for people listening who don't know what the Bechdel test, the Bechdel test was just a test to see how many female voices or how many female characters we're in a movie. And so the the Bechdel test is like, is there more than more than one named female character in a movie? Like, are there two fem named female characters in a movie? That was part one. Part two is, do they talk to each other? And then part three is, do they talk to each other about something other than a man? You know, and just by having this simple uh, 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 benchmark, you know, you're able to draw a line and go, I mean, you're going, there's a way in which the, if you don't, if you're failing the Bechtel test, maybe you're sort of marginalizing women, women's stories, women's voices. Maybe. You don't have to, you know, I'm not saying that that's automatic, but there's a test. And I think now, I'll just say it. I feel like if you write a story in which your hero solves their problem or triumphs at the end by using guns, then you are writing a pro-gun violence movie. Like you are glamorizing guns and you are glamorizing the use of guns to get what you want. And again, I'm not saying like if you're writing a World War II movie, your hero is going to be walking around with guns. Like that's just that what that universe is. I think people should be, I just think screenwriters, I'm encouraging screenwriters to try to be a little bit more inventive. Like I do feel like a gun is a lazy, sometimes a lazy option to go to. It's sort of the easiest thing that you can put into your hero's hand to have them uh, 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 get what they want. And, you know, for example, in No Country for Old Men, you have the bad guy walking around with that crazy air compressor tank. That's how he kills people. Like, that's interesting. Like, that's, it's so much more interesting way to kill, you know, have a killer going around killing people than just having him shoot people with a gun. So, again, I'm, my proposal would just be, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's a, like the Bechdel test, but it's a one step test, which is does your hero get what they want by using a gun? And, is that what you really, is that the message that you really want to tell and give to the world? That, that's my one thing about it. I love it. We're going to call it the art test. And I, no, 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 no. I don't <laughs> want it. <laughs> I think it's a great test. I love it. I really, I, I hope our listeners will put themselves to that test, um, be it they, the writers or the executives or the producers or whatever uh, place you are in the chain. I'm just going to say there's a million different ways that your hero can triumph over their uh, antagonists. And I'll just make a judgment. I think having them shoot a gun is like the laziest, the laziest way to have your hero triumph at the end. And so I just am challenging myself and other people to think about what is another way that your hero can get what he wants besides using a gun. That's it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Now, we have other questions from our listeners we didn't get to, so I will twist Michael's arm at some point to come back uh, and answer more questions and talk about other things, because there's so many great things we could talk about. We could talk about getting notes. There's so many great things we could talk about. Um, 
But to wrap it up, now you've been on the show before, so I won't ask you the, all three questions, but there, I think we added a question since the last time you were here. So I am going to ask you that question. Oh God, okay. Which is, um, if you could have coffee with your younger self, okay. what advice would you give to that young Michael? Um, I think that, and I think I said this actually last time I was on your show, which was budget 20 drafts of anything that you're going to write. Um, I think that I, I said this last time, I used to torture myself by always trying to have the next draft that I wrote be the last draft of the movie. And I think that it just becomes very discouraging and disappointing if you try to solve all your problems with each with each draft. And it's it, it, as you said, it's a process. It's a process of getting deeper, deeper layers. And you can't solve every problem all at once. It's just sort of you're setting yourself for a, 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 an impossible task. So I don't know. That's very that that's not very inspirational. That's a very sort of nuts and bolts. Of course it is. <laughs> kind of, of answer to your question, but it would have saved me a lot of it. Just would have saved me a lot of angst, basically, to to go because I always just go three drafts. Is it finished? Four drafts? Is it finished? Five drafts? Is it finished? And I think that that. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe you can do it. Like maybe you, you get five drafts in and you've written the perfect screenplay, you know, and you don't need, and maybe, you know, a lot of times if your story is very simple, like if you're not trying to do too much of your story and there's not too many moving parts, maybe you can do three, four, five drafts and that's going to be enough. I mean, you know, for Little Miss Sunshine, I did a hundred drafts, you know, of that script for the, for that opening scene in Toy Story 3, we did 60 drafts of the, of just that one opening scene. So uh, anyway, that's the advice I would give is I be patient it. with the process and be patient uh, it, with well, the process in yourself that the truth of your story, not, that's, that is the process. People think it's them. And I'm like, no, it's not you. It's not some proof of it, that you're a writer or not. Well, here, here my, I guess my, my one analogy, I have a gazillion analogies for writing, but one writing, one analogy for trying to write an original screenplay is that it's like trying to wrestle like an 800 pound gorilla. Like if you get defeated, there's no shame in it because what you were trying to do was just completely crazy and unrealistic <laughs> from the beginning. It so, is so um, unrealistic and yet fun <laughs> and we keep doing it. Yeah. Um, you know what? You need allies. That was, that's another thing I would tell yeah. myself. You need allies. And I think that when I wrote Little Miss Sunshine, I was a real prickly pear. I was really, I was just like, everybody shut up and leave me alone. And I'm going to write a great screenplay on my own. And I somehow managed to do it. But going to Pixar really opened my eyes up to how helpful it is just to be about, around other writers and, and helping them and having them help you. So that that's, you know, that's a much better answer. Forget that other answer I gave. The better They're answer is- They're both good answers. You need allies though. You need people who are going to help you. That's what I would there tell There we myself. are. See, it's yeah. the two halves. You got to work really hard and do a million drafts and have allies to help you. There yep, we go. Totally. Theme of the day. Now, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Always, always amazing. Mind-blowing. Love it so much. Thank you. Thank you. I hope this was, uh, I mean, I, I, sorry to come in with a just a big sort of long college lecture about yeah. No, I bet. It's my, I love it. It's my favorite. I love it. It's, I, I was so excited to have you back because I knew you would be very um, thoughtful about what you wanted to talk about. It's it's just interesting to me. I feel like we're in a really interesting moment in movies right now. And and what because movies do speak to people's aspirations and how those aspirations are changing. I'll just I think that I won't give anything away, but I think that if you go see the movie Poor Things, you know, think about the final shot of that movie and what that character is doing, you know, and how that is is the sort of the contemporary sort of wish fulfillment, you know, or aspirational fulfillment um, for, for, for younger audiences. So uh, anyway, listen, thanks for having me Can't on. Th thank you. Well. And thank you for doing what you do. Like speaking of creating a community, that's what you you're doing every day, you know, with this radio show and with your Facebook group. So um, yes. thanks for thanks. letting me be part of it. We love the community. All right. Thanks so much for tuning into the Screenwriting Life. For more support, check out our Facebook group where both emerging and professional writers are finding support and building a community. And please do consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so more folks can find the show. Seriously, guys, do this for us. Come on. And uh, remember, you are not alone and keep writing.